Morena, Stefana. Um, before I get into the um, talk this morning, uh, I just want to just say a big thank you. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a couple of hooies and we had a whole lot of people come to it. Um, we've had so much feedback. And look, as a pastor, to get that much feedback is very encouraging. And I just want to say thank you. Um, I, think, I think all up there was about, I don't know, uh, I ended up typing it all out. Every suggestion, every idea, every question, every thought. And we came up with seven full pages at 10 font. <laughs> um, that's how much, it was amazing. So I just want to say thank you. Um, thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, it means a lot for us as a leadership team to get that kind of feedback and know that you guys are invested in sharing your, um, your thoughts with us. Um, some things have been happening in the background of late that have been really encouraging. I can't say much because we're still kind of negotiating through it all. Um, but we've got a possible couple of tenants that are coming on board. Both are charities. Both are really working within our ethos of, as a church. Um, and it's it's pretty exciting. Um, the giving, you know, we've talked about our finances being, you know, a, a little dire lately. The giving has taken up. It has gone up uh, in an incredible way. Uh, and that's amazing. So I just wanted to share that with you all. And, you know, from, my, from me and from the leadership, just thank you for hearing and sharing. Amen. Um, so let's get stuck into this. Um, I, the, the big picture today is these two words, okay? Only God. Now, I read an article earlier in the week, and I, get, I, I read a lot. I, I, it's silly of me sometimes because, you know, you can read too much. No, you really can. You know, you, you just go through all these articles and there's a couple of sites that I subscribe to. And, 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 and the one thing I get very often, especially from Christian sources, is the next big threat to the gospel. You get these titles that come up frequently. And I just, I got irked this week because I thought, no, actually, there is absolutely no threat to the gospel. Because if it's only God, it's his gospel. And he can do a far better job than we can ever do. Now, some of you will say, but we've got to stand up for this. We've got to do this. Yeah, that becomes your rallying cry. Maybe not God's. And in today's story in particular, one person who had every right to, to just say, only God, actually takes a very big back seat and allows God to be God. It's fascinating because God's very jealous about being only God. What's the first commandment in the Ten Commandments? That's the first commandment. And the word God's there isn't any relation to deities per se, it's to what you worship. Because it's really easy to read that and think, oh, you know, those ancient people, they worshipped all these weird things. We don't do that today, right? 
No, we don't do that. We don't worship those weird things. This is the first commandment. Jesus, as someone reiterated earlier, kind of encapsulates the whole law by saying this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Again, there's a sense, only God. Nothing else, only God. But you see, the guy we're talking about this morning, Elijah, we opened the book last week in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and, and we kind of engaged with this personal relationship between God and this prophet Elijah and what he had to go through to, to follow in faith of what, where God was leading him. And God wasn't so particularly interested in the message that he was giving the world. He was very focused on Elijah. Today, Elijah now comes out of this kind of training ground of being alone with ravens and being fed, um, trusting on God every day for provision, um, you know, helping out a widow, being out on his own, lonely a lot of the times. He now comes out of that light to face the world. And the world is at a point, the Israelites, the people who said they would follow only God, well, it's not only God anymore. It's fascinating. The guy on your left here, that's, uh, well, it depends how you want to pronounce this, Baal or Baal. He doesn't look intimidating, does he? Mum hasn't been feeding him very well. Uh, he was found, this, this statue in particular was found in Megiddo, which is uh, in Israel. So they found this right by where Elijah lived. Right on, the, uh, on your right side, that's Asherah, the wife of Baal. And you might have heard in the uh, Old Testament about the Asherah poles. She was a god of, well, fertility. He was the god of the sun, the fire god. He was also, well, she was the god of rain that brought you know, the crops alive. And this is what Israel was worshipping at the time. The, the kings, the ones who represent the nation, they were worshipping these gods. And Elijah was like, dude, it's not only God anymore. There's all these other gods. So he decides to face them off. God tells him you need to go and confront Ahab. He'd already confronted him once and told him there's going to be a drought. It's not going to rain, which is a direct reference to Asherah, contesting her divinity and saying, God's going to turn the tap off. And that meant, remember last week I told you, droughts killed people. It's not, well, it still is actually like that today, to be honest. But most of us in the Western world don't experience, other than the fact that maybe we can't water our garden for a little while, or shorter showers. In an agrarian culture, you got no food if it didn't rain. People died. This is a big deal. So, he goes to confront good old King Ahab, who's not a very nice king, and 
Ahab sees him from afar and he says, is that you, you, troubler Israel? He sees Elijah and goes, you, you're the one that's causing all the trouble. And the fascinating thing is, well, hang on a sec, you believe in a God and you worship her who's a God of rain, of fertility, of growth. Where is she? And rather than blame it on the lack of a God that's not providing for him, he's taking it out on Elijah. You're the one that curses. You're the one that causes trouble. It's fascinating. Fascinating how we like to blame God when a lot of the times it's ourselves that just don't want to look in the mirror. And Ahab was not willing to look in the mirror. And Elijah turns around and says to him real bluntly, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. You've done this. You need to take responsibility for this. And they haggle a little bit. And it's fascinating that Ahab doesn't kill him on the spot. Because you'd think, why isn't he doing that? Instead, Elijah takes him and his wife Jezebel up and say, let's have a contest. Let's see whose God really is a God. You get all your prophets. And I think there was a lot of them. And they all ate at a big, big table, apparently. Like hundreds of them. That was a big table. And he said, get them all up. And let's, let's, let's see who's, who's going to win this contest. And, and Elijah sets it up in such a way that he puts, he puts Baal on the spot. He says, let's just set up our altars and let's call fire down from heaven. Who's the God of fire? Who's the sun God? It's a direct affront. Ahab can't back down from that. So they go up to Mount Carmel. Here's a, a picture of Mount Carmel. That's Monica on the gates there. There's a little monastery right up on top of Mount Carmel. And if you look behind Monica on, on the left side here in the back there, you can't really see really well with the photo, but that's the Valley of Megiddo. That's where, uh, you know, in, in, in Revelation, the Armageddon will be, but that was also where they found that statue of Baal. And you could see, you could look out, you know, there's a great view from up there. So you can imagine up on Mount Carmel, all these guys getting together, setting up their stuff, and the whole of Israel just kind of looking up there going, wow, this is going to be cool. Right? And the Baal worshippers, they get their stuff up, they set it all up, and then they start dancing around, you know, calling on Baal to come down, and nothing's happening. And you could just see Elijah, and it says he starts kind of giving them stick. Try a little harder, guys, come on. Maybe he's sleeping. So they start dancing more, and they start cutting themselves and doing all this and, 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 and saying all these weird phrases up into heaven. Sounds like some churches, huh? And doing all this stuff, jumping around and everything. And you've got to go to it. It's chapter 18 of 1 Kings. But Elijah, in, in the NIV, it says, oh, maybe he's too busy. But the translation actually is maybe he's on the toilet. I mean, it's, 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 he's dissing the God. He's just going straight at it. 
Maybe he needs to relieve himself and he can't make it. Keep going. He's really giving it to him. And he's just the one, and there's hundreds of them. And they keep going and going, and finally exhausted at the end of the day, nothing. The sun god has decided not to show up. The god of fire has not arrived. So that's when Elijah enacts his plan. How long, he says to the crowd out on top of this beautiful view, looking out of all of Israel. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you be torn between one and the other? Will you either follow the Lord or follow Baal? Pick one. You cannot sit on the fence with this. It's either only God or not only God. There's no in between. And then he begins. He begins to show Israel who this God is, the God, the only God, the God who brought their forefathers out of Egypt, out through, through the wilderness, who gave them this land. He starts by building an altar, reminding them of the covenant that they had with him, that he made with them. It says in 1 Kings 18, Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down, which was there on Mount Carmel. And he repaired the Lord, repaired the covenant between the people and God. I'll tell you a funny story. A number of years ago, I was in Sacramento. We, we, uh, it's funny, when you plan a church in the U.S., it's a little different than planning a church anywhere else. They've got very good strategies in place and you follow these plans. And so even though we started the church and we started meeting and the church grew and we went to another place because we outgrew that place, we hadn't actually officially opened. And so when the official opened, because that was just a soft opening, go figure. We're doing the work and people are coming and we had baptisms, the whole thing. But it was a soft opening. And then halfway through the year, about six months into this church plant, we had the real opening. And we had this big thing happening and you know, everybody was told, we've opened a church. And even though some people are like, haven't we been doing this for six months? I don't know. That's what the union's telling us to do. So we did that. And there was this big thing going on. We had our face painters and, and, and all sorts of stuff going on. And, and Monica was helping out with the face painting. So I went up to her and I said, hey, baby, can you um, paint a bullseye on my head? She said, what? I oh, just do it. It'll be funny. So she did. She painted a bullseye, which I thought was really cool. Now, we're in California. It's the middle of summer. Guess what happened? I got sunburned. Oh, no, no, it's funnier. Because afterwards, you know, you go home and you wipe it all off, and this is what I look like. You know, people will be walking down. I'll be walking down the street, and people will be looking at me going, is, this is that just the way his head is? A week and a half, two weeks like that. I was a marked man. You know, there's a, there's a reason, a covenant required to mark a person. God didn't do that with these people, but in the ancient world, that was normal. 
one of the reasons why the Old Testament says do not put tattoos on was because they marked you as priests. The Romans did it later on as slaves or foreign people were marked. The Romans themselves marked themselves as Romans. It identified who they were. God didn't want that. The identity that he said that you would find was in him. It was countercultural at the time. But the covenant was just like a mark, just like that people could see you and say, who are you aligned with? We have a covenant with God. It's no different to us today. We don't build altars anymore, but we build churches. We mark our cars. We stand apart. People know that you're a Christian. I haven't many times people stop me and they see this. Oh, what's that mean? People coming to the cross. Open door for me to be able to share my faith. I'm marked. I'm marked by the blood of Jesus. And that mark does not go away. It was the same with the people of Israel. For them, you know, it's important. He's, he's having this contest with these people that are so misguided, misled, and, and he starts. Rather than building up his arsenal and, and getting in there to, ready to fight, he restores, he gets the altar back together and says, the covenant with God is more important than anything else. You are his people. You are marked You are set aside. For some of us today, we waver, right? We waver between, you know, all our duties, all the things that we do, all the things that drive us. You know, my biggest regret, and I've shared this before, is being a pastor. Not because I don't like being a pastor, but because of the effect it had on my family. Because it's a tough gig. And they get to see things that, you know, they see dad not doing well. Dad trying to be a good Christian at church and being a good Christian at home and fails pretty badly at home. And my daughter, my middle daughter in particular, she challenges me quite often with my faith. And I said, it's a very brokenness, like Elijah. And we'll see it again next week where after all of this, he'll still run off. He'll still go hide. He'll still find a rock that he could get under. There's God calling right now. (laughs) We're marked in our brokenness. We set apart. But God loved us so much, loved this world, that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the mark of his blood, his covenant with us. And sometimes we waver between duty of work or duty of wanting to get ahead or money or this or that, and the very calling, the very covenant we have with God gets put aside And other gods populate our lives. Me wanting to be the best pastor and growing the best church. When all I was called to be was obedient and that was it. Whether I have two people here or a hundred. We have our gods and we waver. We're pulled to and fro. 
But he is a God of covenant, only God, and only covenant. But he's also God who's about restoration because Elijah understands that, you know, in my brokenness, I, I, I need to be restored. You know, I've, I've had major health issues of late and, I, and, I'm, and I'm tired and, you know, that kind of works on the brain. You know, those of you who are struggling physically, you know how much that kind of drags you down mentally. And so here I am going to the doctor and the doctor's like this, this, and that. And he's like, tell me everything. Oh, I'm like this, that. Uh. And, you get, and you know what, doc? My knee. Like I get up and it cracks. And then he goes, oh, no, that's okay. It's old man knee. What? How can I cure that? He just gave me the look. Oh, man, am I not old? Am I old? Yeah, you're old. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How do I restore my knee? Actually, it's my spirit that needs to be restored. It's our spirit that needs to be restored. And, and, and this is what... Elijah does, he goes, he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel, you will be restored. Each stone reflects each one of you, and together you are part of this covenant. You are restored from me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what these guys have been telling you. I don't care how bad you think you are, how messed up you are, or broken you are. I don't care. I want to restore you. And that anything broken that comes to this cross, a tool of brokenness, and God restores us. And here's Elijah telling his people, I know you've turned your back to God. I know you, you're wavering here. I know you've been drawn because that's what everyone's doing right now. It's cool to go after Asher. It's cool to hang out with Baal. And then the king's doing it. And you don't want to get hurt. And you, know, you don't want to get ostracized. So you're doing it. I get it. Get it. But here, I want to restore you. Remember our covenant. And I want to restore you to that. And for some of us here today, not only are we wavering, but we feel maybe, just maybe, we're not good enough to come back to him. That maybe, just maybe, I'm too wrecked, stuffed up, broken, wrong, ashamed, whatever it is you want to give yourself. This is a God who wants to restore you because by restoring you, he redeems you. He redeems you. It's fascinating. <laughs> you know, you read the story and if you, if you haven't read it, go to 1 Kings chapter 18. Enjoy it. It's a great read. But there's this point where not only does he build the altar up, but then he gets them to bring water. And he dumps water on it. And we're all thinking, oh, <laughs> yeah, because we know the end story. But we forget the symbolism of what it would have meant to the Israelites. Water wasn't just, this is a great party trick. I'm going to show you how we're going to burn this all up. The water meant the Red Sea. It meant the River Jordan. It meant the promised land. It meant redemption. It meant end of slavery. The water was a symbolism 
not something to show some great party trick, though it was a good trick. We today have baptism. Water has significance. It brings life in an agrarian society where up until this point they're in drought. Remember that. Elijah's reminding them. Remember the water. You've crossed it twice. You, you recount the stories every year. Your children know it. Your grandchildren know it. Your grandparents know it. Your parents know it. You know it. These stories have been part of your lives. I'm using the water now to redeem you. 1 Kings. With the stones built an altar in the name of the Lord, he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he said, fill four jars with water and pour the offering on the wood, on the offering and on the wood. And he did it not once, not twice, he did it three times. To remind them, not how great our God is, but how much our God wants to redeem us, bring us back into that promised land. Fascinating that we don't think that because it just doesn't enter our minds. But for the Israelites, that would have been a powerful message. And of course, Baal, who never showed up all day, God did in a moment, boom. And all, all he did was do a small prayer, quiet to himself, no dancing, no cutting, no fire tunnels or all these crazy things we Christians come up with that we feel we've got to do to engage with God. No multiple speakings in tongues and all these exhibitions of gifts and, and it was just a simple prayer. Go and read it. Lord, show us your power. Prove to them who you are. Boom! Bang, done. Freaks everybody out. Simple. Don't need to send yourself into a frenzy to connect with God. So the question I want to challenge you this morning is this. What is taking the place of God in your life? Who are the Baals and the Asherahs that are taking you away from only God? Stop wavering. Stop wavering. Stop wavering. <laughs> I was going to talk about other things. I, I wanted to share a story with you about, you know, death in particular, but, you know, my own journey into faith, which started with death, the death of my father. And along the road, there was the death of my grandfather, and then there was the death of friends. And, and to me, it felt like life was pointless, meaningless. What's the point of this? It was so random. And, you know, I chased up all these um, beliefs, trying to think I couldn't be atheist, because if that's the case, then, you know, how can I even justify living? But, but if there's a God, there's got to be something. There's gotta, it's got to mean something. And when I came to know Jesus, it all made sense. Sure, I'm hurting because my dad's not around. I'm sure I'm hurting because so many people I've known over the years, as you get older, it gets worse. 
you start to see photos of people that you've known for years who are not around anymore. And it hurts. But knowing that only God, well, death is just a door. It might feel final to us, but it's just a door that we're all going to go through one day. Everyone in this room. Only God. Nothing else matters. My plane collection doesn't matter even though I love it. How good you are on a guitar or a drum, that's all good and well. How, how many degrees you might have, how well you do in this life, what you leave to you, that's all great. But only God. Because one day we'll walk through that door. And all there will be is God. That is hope, not fear. That is power. That is, <laughs> that is purpose. That is, oh, that's wonderful news. That I don't have to behold to the gods of this world that drive me left, right, and center. Only God, who loves me, wants to restore me and redeem me, and through Jesus Christ has a covenant in his blood with me. I look forward to one day seeing my dad again. I look forward to seeing the many friends and family that I've lost. Until that time, I live this life only God. Amen? Amen. I ask our music team to come up. Father God, I just want to lift up lift us up to you today, Lord. I wonder who's struggling with the wavering, who's been torn left and right by the gods in their lives. Who who's been um, feeling overwhelmed with brokenness, who can't see a way back to God. That we have purpose, we have hope, we have love in you. I pray, Lord, that this morning you may speak to their hearts. That just a quiet, soft prayer, you can reveal your power, your love, which many of us here really, really need right now, Lord. Thank you, Father that a story that is 3,000 years old still has power for us today. Your word never runs dry. Thank you, Lord.